theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Susan Goldberg in memory of her parents, Rabbi Ayyuleib Ben Ze'ev Wolf and Yochevet Bat Matisyahu Goldzer. Tehei Nishmasam Tzrura, B'Tzrer HaChayim, and to remain a source of blessing and inspiration for you and the entire family and all of the Jewish people, and thank you so, so much. There's a fascinating Rashi in the opening of Parshas Truma. If you'll take a look at your first source in the source sheets, there's more on the Bima if you need. Shmois Perik Chafei Pasuk Beis. This is Exodus 25, 2, the opening of Parshas Truma. Hashem speaks to Moshe and he says, Daber Bnei Yisrael v'yikchu li Truma. Speak to the Bnei Yisrael, to the children of Yisrael, to the Jewish people, and they should take from me Truma, a contribution. From any person whose heart is generous, you should take my contribution. And this is what I want should be retrieved from them. And he goes through the various materials, fabrics, materials, items, metals, that will all be necessary in order to build and construct the Mishkan, the sanctuary, as he continues and says, Build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. So he begins listing the materials. Zahav, get gold, chesef, silver, and chayshas, copper. And goes through many other materials. Oyres, elim, adamim. The hides of rams that will be dyed red. Oyres, chashim. The hides, the skins of an animal called chashim. Va'atzei, shittim. And acacia wood. So Rashi, on that verse 25.5, asks a question. Where did they discover acacia wood in the desert? They needed to have an enormous quantity of atzei shittim of acacia wood in order to build the Mishkan because much of the exterior structure of the Mishkan, all the beams that held up the Mishkan, were all made of acacia wood. Most of the furniture, most of the utensils, the kalim in the Mishkan, were formed and, sculpt- and, and designed from atzishitim, from acacia wood. So Rashi says, how did they have all this lumber, all this type of wood in the desert? Pidish Rabbi Tanchuma. Rabbi Tanchuma answered, he explained, Yaakov Avinu Tzofa Beruch HaKadosh. Yaakov, our father, saw with divine inspiration that the Jewish people are destined to build a mishkan, a sanctuary in the desert, in the wilderness. So when Yaakov relocated from the land of Canaan to Egypt, he brought with him cedar. He brought with him saplings of cedar trees. Vinotam. And he planted them in the soil of Egypt. And he instructed his children, When they would leave Mitzrayim, these saplings, which have now grown into cedars, they should take this wood with them, harvest these trees, and take it with them, take them with them when they leave Egypt. So now when they came to the Midbar, they had plenty of atzeshitim because they took all the trees that Yaakov planted, they have been growing for hundreds of years, remember, 
from when Yaakov planted them in Mitzrayim, he planted either saplings or seeds or already trees that were growing partially that he brought from Eretz Yisrael. And this is how they had all this acacia wood in the desert. I'd say shittim, there's many different types of acacia wood, but it's from the family of Arazim, what's known as the cedar trees. It's all from a similar family. You have it also in English here. How did the children of Israel obtain cedar wood in the deserts? Rabbi Tanchuma says that Yaakov Avinu planted them and told them to take it along. Now, the question of Rashi is a very interesting question. Where did they have so much acacia wood in the desert? But let's see how other commentators dealt with this question. Take Evan Ezra. Evan Ezra lived also in the 11th and 12th century. Evan Ezra lived in Spain. Rashi lived in France. Ebn Ezra is Rabbeinu Avram. Ebn Ezra was one of the greatest poets, biblical commentators, philosophers, sages, rabbis in Spain, in Spain during the 11th and 12th century. And he has a commentary on Chumash known as Ebn Ezra, Rabbeinu Avram, Ebn Ezra. And this is what he says. Hine, ha-mitzrim chayshvim, remember the Egyptians thought, ki lizboyachem ha-olchim v'achakach yoshuvu. Moshe always told Pharaoh, we just want to go for a few days for a holiday. We're coming back. That's why they lent them so many silver utensils and gold utensils and garments. Why would they lend them all of these materials and all of this, these expensive utensils? The answer is because they were borrowing them supposedly and coming back. Okay, so you're going on a trip on a holiday and I give you my things and you're going to bring them back. Now Ezra says, How did they then take out from Egypt so many beams? The beams of the Mishkan, the height of each of the beams was 10 Amas, which is approximately between 15 and 20 feet. Those are long pillars that they're taking from the cedar tree. So they're not just taking small pieces of lumber with them that maybe you need for a barbecue or for a fire. They're taking... They're taking Huge trees, cedar trees are from the tallest trees. So they're taking huge, huge trees that they can then form into these beams. They didn't form them as beams in Mitzrayim, obviously. They just took the lumber. And the Egyptians are looking at them, taking all this, just for three days, <laughs> for a three-day holiday. Gambrichim. Then you had the bars that went through the length of the entire Mishkan, in order to hold the beams together, they were also extremely long. And they passed through Egypt, the center of the, of the kingship, of the monarchy. How did they respond to those who asked them the question, why are you taking so much acacia wood with you when you're just going for a holiday to sacrifice for three days? Vihine says, listen, he says, I don't know. If there's a tradition that we have from our fathers, our forefathers, that really the Ocasio wood was taken out of Egypt, fine. I will be obedient. I will comply and accept it. But if this is just based on logic, I say we need a search for a different answer. Let me tell you what I say. Close to Mount Sinai, where they built the Mishkan, because they stayed there for a year after Matan and they built the Mishkan, there was a huge forest, and the forest probably was filled with acacia trees, and they cut the whole forest, and that's how they had 
the wood. And this avoids my problem of how they managed to take it all, of, take it all out from Mitzrayim, from the Egypt, without anybody challenging them and confronting them. What is this all about? The Das Kenim Mibali HaToysvis. These are the Ashkenazic sages from the family of Toysvis. This is the house of Rashi, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He says something very identical to the Ebenezer. Uba Midbar Hayusham Ya'orim G'doylem. In the Midbar Sinai, it wasn't all a barren desert. They were surrounded by places of civilization, and there were places where there were forests, large forests. And that's where they retrieved the acacia wood, the wood, the lumber that's called shittim, which we translate in English usually as acacia wood. He says, later, you'll have in Bamidbar, the famous story with Pinchas and Zimri, the Jewish people are dwelling in a place, in a community called Shittim. Why is it called Shittim? He says, obviously, that was an environment where there was an enormous quantity of Ocasio wood, Shittim. So they called it Shittim. Later in Yahushua, he sends spies from a place called Shittim. Why is it called Shittim? Because Ocasio trees grow there. Because this forest filled with these types of trees was obviously large and popular and dominant. So they called the place Shittim. That's normal, you know, different types of names attach themselves to different inhabitants. He says, in the desert, there will be a land that grows Shita, and the Daskenim says that's talking about not only in the future, as some commentators say, but even now. A place of Caucasia and myrtles. And I want you to know that this is a light tree. It's not so heavy. And it's also smooth. It's easy to uh, sculpture, to design. I'll prove it to you. He says, there were eight wagons... Eight, eight, uh, eight oxen that were given to the children of Merari, with which they transported the Mishkan from place to place. And in there you had to put all of the beams and the sockets in which the beams were and the pillars and the sockets of the courtyard and the pillars, which were all built of Atse Shittim. He says, how can you do that? Says it wasn't so heavy. I the beams were tall, they were ten amas tall. The width of every beam was an ama and a half, that's around three feet, and the thick was an ama. Obviously, this was a lighter type of wood. So Evanezra and Askanim both agree. Where did they get all this wood? There were places around Midbar Sinai where they can purchase, they can cut forests, and they can get all this wood. Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. In the 15th century, the finance minister of all of Spain, of the kingdom of Spain, was a man named Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. He was a great sage and rabbi and also a brilliant economist. He worked for King Ferdinand and Isabella. And when they decided, under the guidance of Turkomedei, who started with the, during the Inquisition to expel every last Jew from Spain, Abarbanel was granted permission to remain in Spain because he was so... He was seen as so essential and indispensable to the economy of Spain. The king and the queen even offered him to keep their a minion, so he should be able to have a minion. So not only can he stay, he can even practice his Judaism completely. But Abarbanel absolutely refused. He said, if my people can't stay, then I have no future in Spain. And he led the exile out of Spain. Tishabov, 1492, even had them play music on Tishabov. 
to add to the mood. He wanted to help lift up the Jewish people who had to leave a thousand years of life in Spain, and they called it, you know, the golden Tur HaZahav, the golden era of the Jewish people in Spain. And he wrote a commentary on Chumash later in his exiles. He went to Portugal and then Italy. And he, in his commentary on Chumash, on the Tanakh, it's a very famous and very long commentary, that Barbanel also raises this question. And he says, It seems to me far-fetched, Rachek is far-fetched, to say that the Jewish people took out all this wood from Egypt. And remember, they crossed the sea with it. This was a real heavy burden, besides traveling themselves and their children, of their families. And they had on their shoulders all the dough. And whatever they took out, they borrowed so much from Egypt. In addition to that, they, hold, they had these enormous quantities of lumber and they went through the sea with it. What I think is more correct is, There were people who lived in the entire area, in the region, in the Middle East, not far from Egypt, not far from the Sinai Desert, and they would come around. They were merchants, they were peddlers, and they would sell the Jews all types of items and materials. That's how they got so much oil that they needed for the manure. How'd they have oil? So he says again, they bought oil from Gentile merchants that came around and sold these items to the Jews. Hapsamim, they bought various spices and herbs, which they needed for the anointing oil, which they needed for the incense every day in the Mishkan. To think that everything was taken out of Egypt with them, he says, is hard to consider. Hence, they bought also from these people in other words, there were businessmen, Tagre as the Gemara calls them in Masechus Yoma, people, Gentiles who lived in the area. Remember, there were many nations and many tribes and many cultures that lived at that time in the Middle East. And therefore, everyone has to make their own money. People would travel with all these types of items, like they used to call them the peddlers that would go around from shtetl to shtetl. And here, they had a big community that had a lot of money, and they sold them all of these materials. Abar Benel says that's how they got Atzishit. But as we see, Rashi doesn't accept any of these interpretations. And it's interesting because Rashi says many times, Ani bossi loy bossi mikra. Rashi says this in Parshish Bereshish and in many parishes. My agenda is not to quote every Medrash. Most Medrashim, most homiletical interpretations, Rashi does not quote. He says, my agenda is to explain and offer the most literal, straightforward interpretation of a Pasuk. So if there are complex and nuanced interpretations that are midrashic, Rashi will try to avoid them because his objective is pshat, pshat. Here you would think, if Rashi asked the question, where did they get so much acacia wood? He could say this answer. There, was, there were deserts around, there were, there were forests from which they can retrieve them, like the Ebenezer says. Or people came and sold them to the Jewish people. But Rashi rejects all of these answers. And Rashi quotes a medrash from Rabbi Tanchuma that it was all brought down from Yaakov, planted in Egypt, and Yaakov instructed them to take them out from Mitzrayim. This was the tradition that Rabbi Tanchuma, in his Medrash, quotes. And that's how they had all of this Atzei Shittim. What compelled Rashi to see this as the most straightforward reading of the Psukim? One way of explaining this is, 
Rashi was very sensitive to the wording of the Pasuk. When Hashem speaks to Moshe, he says, Speak to the Bnei Yisrael, they should take from me Truma. Obviously, grammatically, there's a challenge here. It should have said, Contributions you don't take, you give. It should have said, They should bring me Truma. They should give me Truma. They should give me a Truma means a contribution, half Russia. What's V'yikhuli Truma? The Sepharno says that you actually have to explain the Pasuk a little differently. Dabra Bnei Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel, V'yikhuli, tell them that I asked the Gizbarim, the fundraisers, the collectors, to go and take from them Truma. So Dabra Bnei Yisrael and V'yikhu are talking about two different groups of people. Speak to the Bnei Yisrael, V'yikhu, so that the fundraisers should come and take and they should allow them to take from them all these materials because it's coming from me. But why the need for this roundabout way of giving the mitzvah? Just say, And it says it three times. From whoever is generous, take the truma. This is the contribution you should take from them. So the last two make sense grammatically. But all three times he could have spoken about the fact that this is what the Jewish people should give, especially the first time. But the word is v'yikhu. So from here, Rashi perhaps deduced that the Torah is trying to intimate something. And that is that all the materials that were needed for the Mishkan were already present in the domain of the Jewish people. So all that was missing was, just go and take it. If the Torah would say, speak to the children of Israel, they should give. So if I ask you, can you please give to so-and-so this and this? You may have it. You may have to go borrow it. You may have to go buy it. You may have to go obtain it. You may have to go cut down a forest and get it. And then you could give it. When you say, please give it, it includes any preparation that's necessary in order to give. So the Torah changed it deliberately to say, just take it. Which emphasizes the point, it's already there. All that's needed is, So Rashi asks a question. May I in Midbar? He doesn't have a problem with the fact that there may be forests around Midbar Sinai and they could cut those forests. He doesn't have a problem with the fact that merchants, peddlers may be traveling and the Jewish people could buy these materials from them. But to have such an amount of quantity of lumber ready in their domain that all you need is v'yikhu. Right? People don't, even if people have wood, they don't travel with so much wood and this type of wood and in such a large quantity and such long beams, etc., so how is the Vayikhu happening? So for this Rashi says, Pidish Rabbi Tanchuma. Rabbi Tanchuma explained that they left Mitzrayim with all of this lumber because Yaakov Avinu told them to take it. And therefore, when the commandment to build the Mishkan came, the Rabbi Nishalalam could say, Vayikhu li truma. Just take the truma. And that included not only gold and silver and copper, which they had, the Torah clearly says, that they took out of Egypt enormous quantities of gold and silver and copper. And later, after the splitting of the sea and the Egyptians were there, the Gemara says, hayam What they took at the sea was even more than what they took from Egypt. So they had all of these materials. But even Atzei Shittim, which you wouldn't expect... Because Yaakov Avinu told them to take it. So they had plenty of trees, plenty of lumber, and therefore Hashem could say, The word is because it's ready. And if you read in Rashi, you see how by all the materials, 
he says different commentaries that indicate how the Jewish people would have had these things. For example, he says, by sheish, linen, it says, he says, it, he says, sheish is pishton, linen. Other times, in, early in Chumash, it says sheish, he doesn't explain it. Why here does he explain it? Because Rashi already said that pishton grows in Mitzrayim. So now you know how they had pishton, how they had linen. Rashi says about cheles, argaman, selashani, he says there was wolves that were dyed. We know how much sheep they had, how much cattle they had. So they obviously had a lot of wool. So if you look at the commentary of Rashi, it seems that throughout all of the fabrics, he makes sure to realize that if you have a question, how they had it, I'll show you how they had it. So here, Atzei Shittim as well. That's why also it explains why he says, Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma. Usually, when Rashi quotes a Medrash, which is not often, it's sometimes, but not very, very frequent. So Rashi will quote the explanation. At the end, he'll say, Tanchuma, or Meirebi Tanchuma. Or Medrasha. Here he says, Pirish Rebbe Tanchuma, very, very rare and unusual way of Rashi talking. Rebbe Tanchuma explained almost to show that this is not just a Medrashic interpretation. It's Pirish Rebbe Tanchuma, it's the way you have to be Mefarish, the way you have to explain the Pasuk because of the difficulty of Viyikhu, which is such a strange expression that grammatically seems completely not to fit in with the style of the, with the statement of the, with the message of the Pasuk. So that's why he says, Peter that this is an interpretation of Pshat. But now we come to the fundamental question, and that is, why did Yaakov do this? Remember, the Torah says that the Jewish people spent 400 years in Egypt. That means when Yaakov Avinu relocated from Eretz Canaan to Egypt, this happened 400 years before the story. Rashi makes a calculation based on Chazal that it wasn't really 400 years, it was 210 years. The Pasuk says they stayed there 400 years, but Rashi says that the Gullus already began earlier. So the Cheshben of 400 years begins much earlier because according to the calculation, according to the chronology, it seems <laughs> that they were there for 210 years. But obviously it was more than, it was a, a huge amount of time. As we said, there may have been Ocasio Wood in Egypt. There may have been Ocasio Wood in the forests around Sinai. There were peddlers coming around and selling. So why did Yaakov have to work so hard 400 years before the story or 210 years before the story or whatever the exact amount of years to schlep down all the way from Canaan saplings of cedar wood? Remember, he's relocating with his entire family. Wives, children, grandchildren, whoever was alive then in Canaan that came down, the 70 people that came down to Mitzrayim. Paroi specifically sent empty wagons from Egypt back to Eretz Canaan so Yaakov could transport everything. So it's not like Yaakov was just coming himself empty-handed, so he brought a few wagons with saplings. This was a complete transformation of his life. They left Eretz Canaan for good and they came to Egypt. So Yaakov said, wait, wait, we have to take something else. And he schleps now cedar trees or cedar saplings to Egypt and he plants them in Egypt so they can grow in Mitzrayim, and he tells them, before he passes away, one day you're going to leave, make sure you take these trees. He could have just told them, even if he wants to tell them. He could have just told them, even if he wants them to know to take out these trees out of Egypt, so they'll have v'yikhu, they'll be able to take it. So Yaakov could have told them, make sure before you leave Mitzrayim, take from the cedar trees here. (laughs) Yaakov Avinu also could have planted it from cedars in Mitzrayim, he had to bring them from Eretz Yisrael. Yaakov could have told them, buy them from people, Yaakov could have told them, there may be for, there is forest there, make sure you cut down Shittim. I mean, what a tircha for Yaakov, what a bother for Yaakov to do, and also for them, that when they have to leave Mitzrayim, they have to schlep 
all of the slumber. So Yaakov could have just told them. He, first of all, he didn't have to tell them anything. <laughs> they could have taka bought it over there when they left. They could have cut it from a forest, like Devin Ezra says. They could have bought it from people. Even if for whatever reason Yaakov wanted that they should take it out of Mitzrayim, he could have told them to take it out of Mitzrayim. He had to plant them himself. So you might say, Yaakov knew that Hashem is going to save a Yichu. <laughs> if Yaakov thought that Hashem might save a Yichu, he wanted it should be ready. Fine. So he could tell them, make sure you take Atzei Shittim. What was the meaning of this? What was the significance of this? Why would Yaakov feel the need to do this? So I want to change the subject for a moment. We'll get back to this Bezer Hashem. And I want to study with you a piece of the Haggadah. In your next source, everybody knows this is the opening of the Haggadah. After the Manishtana, the children ask the questions. And we speak about the fact, Whoever increases to tell the story of the Exodus is praiseworthy. The Haggadah goes on telling a story. This is the famous story with which we open up the conversation of the Haggadah. Maisa, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lazar ben Azayu, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarifin, Shoyu Mesubin be Bnei Brak, Vayu Mesaprim be Itzias Mitzrayim, Kol Oisei Alayla. At Shabbos Hamidayim, Vamrulam Rabbi Seinu Igiyas Man Kriyash Mashal Shachros. It's a story about some of the greatest Talmudic sages of the time. This takes us back to the second century after the Common Era. This is some decades after the destruction of the Second Beis Hamikdash was in the year seventy. <laughs> Tough, tough, hey, Gibel Allah from Tough, tough, Lamed in the Hebrew calendar, in the Jewish calendar, 3,000, 3,830 since creation, or maybe a year earlier or two years earlier. It was either 68 or 69 or 70. And in the decades following that, some of the greatest chazal, some of the greatest sages of the time, gathered together in Bnei Brak for the Seder. Who? We have a man named Rabbi Eliezer. He's also known as Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol or Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. His father's name was Horkinus. We have Rabbi Yeshua. He's also known as Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania. He was actually a levi and he was one of the musicians in the second Beis Hamikdash, the last years, the waning years. We have Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. And we have Rabbi Akiva and we have Rabbi Tarfin. And they all come to Bnei Brak and they're sitting the whole night, Kol Oisei that night. That night and they're telling the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. Until their students... Come to them and say, teachers are teachers. It's already the time to read Kriyashma in the morning. Dawn has broken. The sun will soon rise. Rebbe's, it's time to say Kriyashma. In other words, they really sat all night and told the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. And then the Haggadah continues. Amar Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah. Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah says, and in some of the versions it says, Amar Lahem Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah. Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah says to them, in other words, it's part of the first story. It's not a second story. I'm already a person who is like 70 years old. The Gemara explains in Brachas, Chavches, what does he mean, Kiven, you're 70, you're not 70. He was really much younger, he was actually 18 years old. But they needed a new leader for the Jewish people, Rem Gamliel was dethroned at the time, and they chose Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah, but he had to consult his wife, and her concern was, he's so young, and he grew some white hair, and he accepted the position with the agreement of his spouse. And he says, 
And he becomes the leader, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people. And he says, I never had a source that you have to mention Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim at night. It says, Remember the day that you left Egypt throughout all the days of your life, but maybe it means only during the day. By day, we mention Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. By night? But Ben Zoyma said, It says, Remember Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim all the days of your life. It could have said throughout the days of your life. The days of your life means the day, and all the days is even at night. This is what Abelazah ben Azariah tells them. Now here's a very interesting question. We know that Rabbi Akiva, till 40 years, he did not learn. The Gemara says he was absolutely illiterate. He was a shepherd, and there was a woman, Rachel. He was a shepherd for Kalba Savua, was one of the wealthy Jews of Eretz Yisrael at the time. And Kalba Savua had a, had a daughter, Rachel, took a liking to Rabbi Akiva. She felt very positive about him, and she offered to marry him, but he has to go learn. <laughs> and Rabbi Akiva went to learn. Who were his rebbes? So our sages tell us that Rabbi Eliezer was his rebbe, and Rabbi Yeshua was his rebbe. Isn't it strange then that the Rebbes came for Pesach to the student rather than the student coming to the Rebbe? You know, we take it for granted. Maisa, Rebbe Eliezer, Rebbe Yeshua. Those are the two masters, the two Rebbes of Rabbi Akiva. Usually a student, especially on Yom Tov, goes to a Rebbe, not the other way around. Rebbe Lezer ben Azayah and Rebbe Tarfin, they were colleagues, they were friends. But Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer was the Rebbe Muvik. He was the teacher of Rabbi Akiva. And they all came to Rabbi Akiva. How do I know they came to Rabbi Akiva? Because it says, <laughs> They came to Bnei Brak. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, the Aflamid Beis, page 32, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdev, Halach, Achere, Rabbi Akiva, Le You're looking for a good Bezdin, you go to Rabbi Akiva, who was the rabbi, the spiritual leader of Bnei Brak. Halach, Rabbi Eliezer was the rabbi of the city of Lud. Rabbi Akiva was in Bnei Brak. They all came to Bnei Brak, to Rabbi Akiva's location. But the question is even stronger. And here you see how when we have a broadness, we get to see new insights. Take a look at the next source. This is from a Gemara, Sukkah of Zion Amid Beis. Talmud Sukkah, page 27. Tana Rabban and the rabbis taught. There was a great Talmudic sage, his name was Rabbi Elioi, and on Yom Tif, he went to greet his Rebbe Rabbi Eliezer. Remember, we already just learned about Rabbi Eliezer, who was by Rabbi Akiva for Pesach. But one year, Rabbi Elio came for Yom Tov. It doesn't say which Yom Tov. He came to welcome, to greet his Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. And he went to Lud, because Rabbi Eliezer lived in Lud. Omar Loi, his teacher, tells him, Elioi, I don't understand. Don't you keep Yom Tov? Don't you observe the holidays? Don't you rest on Yom Tov? What does he mean? He came to see his Rebbe on Yom Tov. Of course he rests on Yom Tov. He doesn't work. Shahoyer Rebbe Eliezer, Rebbe Eliezer used to say, I have a special love for the lazy people. I am fond of the lazy, who don't leave their homes on Yom Tif. I have admiration. I have words of praise for the lazy people. Because the Torah says, On Yom Tif, you bring joy to your household to your wife, to your children. I like the people who are lazy and say, I don't have koyach to leave the house. I don't have koyach. Sorry, I got to stay home. It doesn't mean they stay home and they sleep on the couch. It means that they're involved with family. So Rabbi Eliezer turns to Rabbi Eloi and says, you don't keep yomtev? Why are you coming to me? Get out. You have a wife. You have children. Go back home. Don't come to me. This was Rabbi Eliezer's view. 
This was, and the Gemara then analyzes his view, Rabbi Lez's view. One second, how could you be so hypocritical? Where did you go for Pesach? <laughs> you went for Pesach to Bnei Brak. What happened? What happened with you being lazy? What happened with you staying home? Pesach is a yomtif. There's a mitzvah of Simcha on Pesach, like all the Yomim Tovim. So Rebbe Eliezer chastises Rebbe Eliyahu for coming to him in Lud on Yomtif. But he himself, on Pesach, goes to uh, Rebbe Kiva in Bnei Brak. These questions were raised in a commentary on the Haggadah that's known as Leil Shimurim. It's a commentary that was written by the author of the Aruch HaShulchan. There was a Jew, one of the great rabbis of the 19th century was a man named Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein. Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein. He was the Rav of Navardik. Navardik is the famous city in Belarus, on the border of Lithuania. It's a city in Belarus, Navardik, the famous Navardik Yeshiva. The Rav of Navardik was Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein, who authored a seminal work in Halacha known as Aruch HaShulchan in which he organized the halachic literature till his day in a very systematic and organized and clear way. He also authored a book called Aruch HaShulchan HaAsid. The future Aruch HaShulchan was as a Shulchan Aruch for after Mashiach comes. All the halachas that Jews are going to have to know for the future. Aruch HaShulchan HaAsid. He was a great man and a great mind. He passed away in 1908. Chavbez Adr, 22nd day of Tofrech Samaches, 1908. And he was born in Babroisk in Belarus. And he has this work, Aruch HaShulchan, on Halacha. He also has other comment works. One of them is a work on the Haggadah called Lel Shemurah. In his commentary on the Haggadah, he asks these questions. Why did the teachers come to the student? The student should come to the teacher. And why did Rabbi Eliezer behave apparently in a way that is inconsistent with what he himself taught Rabbi Eliezer when he came to see him in Lut? But it's this story in the Haggadah that opens a vista to go back to our Rashi with Rabbi Tanchuma. Rashi, as a rule, does not usually quote the sources of the people who give the commentary that he quotes. In other words, if you look at most commentaries of Rashi, even if he's quoting a Gemara or a Medrash, very rarely will he quote the person who said it. He'll just say the commentary. If you look up the source, you'll see it was said by a certain sage. And there's a reason for it. Because again, Rashi's objective is not to quote all the sources. Rashi's objective is that even a five-year-old child and a 90-year-old and a 90-year-old elderly sage should learn Pshutei Shalmikras or Rashi rarely quotes the names of the people who said the statements that he quotes. Once in a while he'll do it and you always have to know why. Because <laughs> there's a reason for it because most times he doesn't do it. Here Rashi does it. Rashi sometimes writes, Rabbi Seinu Pishu, our Rebbe is taught, even though it was a person. You look in the source, sometimes he'll say Medrashi, sometimes he'll say Chachamenu, sometimes he'll just say Bemedrish, or Reisi Bebrechus Rabbi, or Reisi Betanchuma. Once in a while, infrequently, he'll mention the name. Here he mentions the name. He says, Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma. He could have just quoted the interpretation. If you want to give a source, he can give a source. Why does Rashi mention here the name? The answer to this, I heard myself from the Lubavitcher Rebbe when he was explaining this Rashi, Shabbos, Parshas, Truma, Tovshin, Mem, Zayin. That's a long time ago, 1987. 
I was 14 years old, but I still remember the explanation vividly because it was very emotional and moving. And he said that by quoting this name, Rashi is actually explaining the reason that Yaakov did this. The word Tanchuma comes from the word Tanchumin, which means comfort. Right? Like Hamakim, Yenachem, Yenachamenu, Nechama. The word Tanchuma comes from the word Nechama, which means to, so, to, to offer solace, condolences, comfort. In Yiddish, it's called Tresten, to trace somebody, to lift somebody up in a difficult moment. Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma. Rashi doesn't just say, Pirshu Rabbi Senu, our teacher said this, or the Medrash says it, or just say it, and you could, and we'll know that it's from a source. Rashi didn't invent stories, Chas Rashi says the name because this gives insight and answers the question, why would Yaakov go through this entire bother of schlepping down these cedars and planting them and then telling the Jewish people to schlep them out of Egypt with them through the Yamsuf all the way into the Midbar when there were other opportunities to obtain the Acacia wood? Why did even Hashem have to say V'yikhu when he could have said V'yitnu just so that Yaakov should have to do this whole thing, so there should be v'yikhu. Why couldn't they just get the cedars from the forest, get the cedars from, from salesmen, from merchants, from peddlers? So Rashi says, Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma. Yaakov, as the fourth father, as the patriarch of the Jewish people, thought about Nechama. He thought about offering comfort to the Jewish people. Yaakov knows, or he has a hunch, that when he's living in Egypt, there's a lot of comfort. Yosef is the prime minister. The Jewish people are treated very well. But times change. And one day, Yosef dies. Yosef passes away. His brothers pass away. The whole generation pass away. Their children pass away. As Shmois opens up, a new king arises. He doesn't know Yosef. And suddenly this people, who found such graceful hospitality by the Egyptians for so many years, are transformed into miserable, downtrodden, dejected slaves, subjected to slave labor and subjected to genocide. They're oppressed. As the Torah says. They embitter, they make their lives miserable with every form of oppressive, excruciatingly torturous labor. And if that's not enough, the male infants should be plunged into the Nile River. And the Jewish people are suffering, and they suffer for years under the tyranny of Parai. In this, Egypt becomes for the Jewish people a concentration camp. Yaakov, as a father, as the ultimate father, as Yaakov Avinu, he thinks about Nechama how to offer comfort to the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people were promised they're going to go out. Yaakov told it to them. Because when Yaakov was going down to Egypt, Hashem said, don't be afraid, I'm coming down with you. I'm coming up with you. When Yaakov was about to pass away, he told Yosef, don't bury me here. Bury me back in Maris HaMachpeil in Hebron. When Yosef passed away at the end of Ayechi, he made his brothers and his family take an oath. And he said, One day Hashem will remember you. You're going to go out. Take my bones with you. And indeed, in the beginning of Parshas B'Shalach, it says, 
They did not leave Egypt until Moshe Rabbeinu went and fulfilled the pledge that his ancestors gave to Yosef many years earlier when Yosef passed away to take out his casket, his coffin from Mitzrayim. And the Pasuk says, Yosef made them swear. So there was a verbal promise and an oath that one day the Jewish people are going to leave, and they knew it. And when Moshe Rabbeinu came back to the Jewish people and said, Hashem sent me, it says, The Jewish people believed him, even though later they couldn't listen to him because the oppression became even more intense and the pressure became even more excruciatingly difficult because Pare imposed the labor on them much more and the quota became greater. But ultimately, the Jewish people embraced the promise, and Moshe can begin the mission of redemption. But these were ultimately words that the Jewish people embraced and believed in. Yaakov Avinu knew how painful and how difficult and excruciatingly torturous the savage suffering that his children, women, men, youngsters, elderly parents, all of the Jewish people in Egypt will endure. So Yaakov Avinu thinks about how I can comfort them, how I can offer solace to them. He knows that they'll be able to build a mishkan with acacia wood from many different sources. That's not the problem. But he's thinking about Tanchuma, Pidush Tanchuma. So what does he do? He brings down saplings of cedars into Egypt. He plants them. And before he passes away, as these saplings just begin to grow, he turns to his children and grandchildren and says, one day you're going to leave this place. And you're going to watch these trees grow. Make sure when you make sure you're going to watch these trees grow and make sure when you leave, you take all this lumber with you because you're going to build a Mishkan for Hashem in the desert. And you're going to need all of this lumber. So make sure you take them with you. And that's why I planted them. And here the Jewish people had something concrete to look on, to look at, and to hold on to. As the years in Gullahs continue, a hundred years passed. And 200 years passed, 300 years passed, 350 years passed. Or whatever your calculation is, 100, 150 years. Yaakov is not here. Yaakov's children are not here. Yaakov's grandchildren are not here. Yaakov's great children. There's nobody alive anymore who remembers Yaakov. There's nobody who's alive that remembers Yosef. They have a verbal promise that there's going to be gula, there's going to be emancipation. But Yaakov gave them a greater gift. Every mother and every father could point to all of these cedars trees, all of these cedars growing. And they could point to them and see, you see these? These don't come from Mitzrayim. They come from our homeland. They come from Eretz Yisrael. They were physically transplanted here to Egypt because Yaakov said that these trees were going to take with us when we leave Mitzrayim. And as the trees grew, their hope grew with them. And as the subjugation and enslavement and tyranny of Pare perhaps became at times unbearable, and so difficult to deal with, the stress, the anxiety, the agony, the suffering, the sobbing, the tears. Mothers and fathers and grandparents can embrace their kinderlach, their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and point to these trees and say, listen to the whisper. Listen to the whisper of these trees. Listen to the story that these trees tell. Remember that Yaakov could have also planted them from Egyptian cedars. He didn't. He brought them from Eretz Yisrael. Why not plant them in Egypt from Egyptian cedars? He wanted to show the Jewish people in a very concrete way, we didn't start here. We came from Eretz Yisrael. We're here on a journey. 
these trees are going to come with you when you go out of Mitzrayim. So throughout the long years of Golos, the Jewish people had this concrete embodiment of hope. This was a physical link to a past and a physical link to a future outside of Golos. And when they looked at those whispering trees, they can see in their mind's eye the presence of Yaakov Avinu, their father who came down to Mitzrayim and was told and told them, you're going to leave. And at that moment, these wretched slaves can experience freedom, can see themselves as free people. Because the greatest tragedy of a slave, physically or emotionally, is the loss of hope, the loss of identity, the loss of dignity, the battered person who forgets that abuse is called abuse, who makes peace with bondage, who makes peace with dysfunctionality, who almost feels, I deserve it. This is... This is my fate. This is my destiny. This is where I always was. This is where I will forever be. But here you had these Irozim planted by Yaakov Avinu that came from Eretz Yisrael with a clear instruction. You're going to go out and you're going to take these Irozim with you. So indeed, they could have obtained wood from many other sources. Of course they could have. Forests and peddlers and merchants cut forests, buy them, whatever the methods would be. But Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma, for all the years in Golis Mitzrayim, they should have in front of their eyes a reminder, a concrete, physical manifestation of the truth that they are not essentially an enslaved people. They are not essentially slaves. The light of redemption beaconed on them through these whispering trees. It reminded them where they came from. And it reminded them what their destiny is, what their trajectory is, what their future is, what their vocation is. It always whispered to them the message of Geula. When they looked at these trees, they can feel, they can breathe an energy, a vision of redemption, of redemptive consciousness. And indeed, we can imagine then what Yaakov Avinu accomplished. Because words are powerful, but the visual, we all know the visual, is something exceptional, especially for young people. So every Jewish child grew up, and here was Yaakov Avinu. This was planted by Yaakov's hands. Nobody else planted them. From Eretz Yisrael. And look as they're growing. He said, you're going to leave this place and you're going to build a mishkan where God is going to dwell among you in the desert. This gave the Jewish people a sense of hope and of elevation and of inspiration that a part of them always remained above, always remained connected to something deeper. You know, I, just, I heard a story a few years ago from a Jew. His name was Saul Dreyer. Saul Dreyer. He lived in Florida. This was around three years ago, right before Corona. He was then 95 years old. And he was, believe it or not, a member in a band. And it was called the Band of Holocaust Survivors. And he was the drummer in the band. So I heard him speak. He said, how did he become a drummer? He was in a concentration camp. He lost much of his family. And at night, he said, they would sit in the barracks for hours. And he said, I always had two passions in my life. Food and music. 
in the camps, there was no food. I was starving. We were all starving. And when people are hungry for days and weeks, for months, nobody should ever understand, you, you, you lose your humanity. Because it's like those basic, those basic necessary items for survival are gone. You can't think. You can't have vision. You know, Maslow's hierarchy, you first have to have food, acts like a person choking. You can't think about grand visions when somebody's choking, when somebody's so starving and emaciated. She says, but we didn't have food. But I decided, you know what, I don't have to give up my second passion, which is music. But where am I going to have music in the camp? So he said, we each had a spoon. So I borrowed a spoon from another Jew, and I would start clanking with the spoons. He's a secular Jew. He said the song he knew was Hava Nagila. Hava. So he said with the spoons, he would start clanking. Every night he would make a concert with his two spoons. By the way, they say that it comes, that this nigin comes from Psach one of the Hasidic dynasties. So the Gero Majits, then it was taken. But he would sing. And he said, everybody would start clapping. And he did this every single night. Every single night. And when the war ended, he came out and he became a drummer. And he has now this band. He was 95 years old playing, playing drums. Now real drums, not spoons. Because so much of freedom has to do with my mindset. The Gemara says, Ain Ani Ella Poverty is in the mind. Circumstances the Jews couldn't change in Mitzrayim. But the Arazim of Yaakov Avinu reminded them that they are essentially free men, free women, carved in the image of Hashem. You're my servants. You're servants of a free God who wants to see your full potential blossom. You're not servants of slaves. You're not slaves of slaves, slaves of para. That's why Rashi quotes the name Pirish Rabbi Tanchuma. This was so essential to the Nechama. And the Rebbe then continued and he said that there's also a deeper hint. The Pasuk says in Tehillim, Tehillim Tzadik Beis, you could see it in your next source, Tzadik Atoma Yifrach Ke'erez Balvon and Yizge. A Tzadik blossoms like a palm tree. Ke'erez Balvon and Yizge. He blossoms, he grows, or she grows like a cedar in Lebanon. Lebanon is known for its splendid, gigantic, tall, magnificent cedar trees. It says, Many communities, we say this on Shabbos. So the tzaddik is compared to the cedar tree. So when Yaakov Avinu plants the cedars in Egypt, there was two types of cedars he planted. There are the physical cedar trees he planted, the arazim that the Jews would physically take with them when they leave Egypt and use them to build the Mishkan for the Rebbeinah Shalayim. But there was another form of cedar trees he planted. If you take a look, the Gemara says in Yuma Lamet Ches, Hashem saw that there are a few tzaddikim. He planted them. Shoslan. Shesil in Hebrew is a sapling, a little plant. Shoslan. He planted them in every generation. People are not planted. People are born. People grow up. But here the word is v'shoslan. Shoslan is planted them. Put them in the earth. Tzaddik katama yifrach ke'erez balavon in yizge. And the Megala Mukas, which is a famous Kabbalistic work authored by Rabbi Nosson Shapiro, the rabbi of Krakow, 
passed away in the year Tuf, Hey Allah from Tuf, 1640. On his Matseva in Krakow, it says, it was known that he learned Torah from the mouth of Elio Anovi. I don't know if there's such a tombstone anywhere else in the world. On his tombstone, they should write it. You know, you don't exaggerate on tombstones, especially not in 1640, that he was, he learned Torah. So Megala Amukas writes in a safe Megala Amukas, Nasi, the word Nasi, which is the term that's used for the spiritual leader of a Jewish people, is Rosh Tevis Nitsutsoi Shel Yaakov Avinu. What's the definition of a nasi, of a leader? He is a nitsutsai shell, it's an acronym, a spark of Yaakov. Why? Because the definition of a nasi is that he's one of the plants, one of the sparks, one of the saplings, one of the cedars that Yaakov Avinu planted in every generation. What does this mean? It means that just as the Jews were in Golis Mitzrayim, that Medrash says that all the exiles are called Mitzrayim because the word Mitzrayim comes from the word Meitzar, distress, restrictiveness. Whenever a person is in a state of, of, of restrictiveness, when a person feels contracted, fakvetched, recoiled, fearful, dejected, that's called Mitzrayim, even if it's not the geographical location of Egypt. So just as Yaakov thinks about the Jews in Golis Mitzrayim, for all future generations, Yaakov also brings Arozim, Ke'erez balavon, and he brings saplings of cedars. V'shoslon, and he plants them. Those are the sparks. Nitzutzah shal Yaakov Avinu. To do what? To accomplish what? To accomplish what they accomplished the first time in Egypt. What is the definition of a tzaddik? What is the definition? Sometimes people want to know, how do you know who's a manig Yisrael, A leader of the Jewish people. How do you know what an authentic Rebbe is? How do you know who's a real Nasi, a Nasi of Bnei Yisrael, a leader of the Jewish people? What is even the meaning of it? What is the purpose of it? This is what Rabbi Tanchuma is teaching us. Rabbi Tanchuma is teaching us that Hashem plants in generation souls to allow a person to be able not to see their greatness, but to allow a person to be able to see his or her own greatness. There are certain souls that when you encounter them, when you learn from them, when you're inspired by them, what happens? You feel like a cedar tree. You become an Erez Balavon and Yizge. You know, sometimes you're in the presence of people and when you come out of that encounter, you feel small. <laughs> or you feel, I don't know, a little queasy sometimes. Or you feel uncomfortable or you feel stressed, or you feel nothing. But Yaakov Avinu planted, Tzadik Atama Yifra Kerdel Bavon souls, that when you encounter these souls, you realize that you're a free person. You realize that you're a divine person. You suddenly become aware of the energy, the creativity, the infinity, the love, the godliness, the holiness, the perfection, the compassion that flows through your system. You look at yourself in different ways. There are people that when you meet, they put up a mirror to themselves so that you should see them. There are people that you meet and they put up a mirror to you. They want to become your mirror so that through them, you should see yourself. But see your authentic self. See yourself in the most powerful fashion. See yourself not as a victim, but as a free person. Not as somebody who essentially is wretched and belongs in subjugation and gullus, but essentially is an ambassador of love, light, hope, an ambassador of the divine, and therefore operates on a geula, redemptive consciousness.
So in each generation, Hashem plants tzaddikim. Yaakov Avinu gives them part of his sparks. These are his cedar trees that he puts into the soil of Galus as a shliach of Hashem. Souls that never become completely lost in the tsunami of exile. They never allow themselves to become submerged in the quagmire of the anxiety of life. Souls that always feel that their origin comes from Eretz Yisrael. They're rooted in a place of Geula. And souls that always point to the trajectory of redemption. Souls that have both of their feet etched on t- into the ground. Because if not, I can't relate to them. But they allow me to remember who I am, who I can be. What is my real essence? What is my real calling? What is my, my true depth? So as the Jews travel through the desert, Yechezkel calls it Midbar Ha'amim, the desert, the wilderness that Jews will traverse throughout history, many nations. Yaakov says, make sure you take these arazim with you. Always hold on to such types of cedar trees. Be blessed to have a person in your life that when you look at this person, when you encounter the person, you realize that you are a cedar tree. That you are an Erez. That can become a Mishkan. And this is the role. This is what a real Manhig Yisrael is. And today, who is not a leader among the Jewish people? Everyone is a leader to themselves, to their families, to their children, to their friends, to their loved ones, to their community. Every person is a little, is a, is, is a little Rebbe. Rebbe Baruchel of Mezhebuz writes, he was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tev, And he says, we say in Ashrei, I recently sent out a clip with a whole story about this, but he says, it's not just to let people know about Hashem's strength. It says it's written like a mitzvah. Hashem gives you a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah? Every person you meet, you have to let them become aware of their own strengths. Ataycha. Every person you meet, you have to make them aware of the glory and the beauty and the royalty that they embody and manifest in this world. It's a mitzvah that Hashem gives you. Go out and let people know. Every person who's a ben adam. Every man, woman, youngster, youth, female, male, every person, whatever age or background, let them know gvuroisov. What type of gvura, what type of majesty, what type of royalty, what type of fortitude, resilience, and depth lay in their soul. I can't do that for somebody else if I can't do that for myself. Uchvoid hadar malchuse, to be able to see their cover, their honor, their glory, their majesty, their aristocracy, their hadar. Hadar is their gorgeousness, their splendor, their shenkite, malchusai. And then they become ambassadors for Malchus Cha, Malchus Kalaylamim, throughout all of the world. That's the definition of a real Rebbe. Somebody in whose presence you feel taller. You feel greater. You feel deeper. You feel empowered. You feel competent. The one who reminds me never to surrender to a life of mediocrity, to a life of desperation, to a life of despair, to a life of of depression. Because I'm Hashem's ambassador in this world. And as Chazal say, Ashliach possesses the properties of the one who sent him. So therefore I and you, 
at our core are indestructible. You have that infinite light because you are the derivative of Hashem's consciousness of oneness. Now come back with me to the Haggadah and we'll see what happens here in the Haggadah. And it's all indicated in one word that seems to be grammatically off. If you go back to the Haggadah and those sources... What's called Oisei Halayla? There's one night when we sit by the Seder. It's called Pesach. Now it's Yisrael, there's one night of Pesach. One night, not one night, maybe one night of the Seder. So it says, We're in Bnei Brak, and they were telling the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. It should have said, Kol Halayla, all the night. All of that night. Yes, it was that night. What would have been missing? We know it was the night of Pesach. I don't think it was to Bishvat. You could sit all night to Bishvat, tell the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but they would come to Bnei Brak and sit all night on to Bishvat or on Hanukkah or on Purim or on Lagboimer or on another night, to say the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Obviously, it was the night of Pesach. That's when Jews sit and tell the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. What's called Oisei Halaylis? You say, what's the difference? But Chazal were very meticulous in their words. They didn't write extra words for no reason. means that night. It was that night. What was that night? So there's a beautiful interpretation that was shared by the Kloisenberger Rebbe. The Kloisenberger Rebbe was Rabbi Kusil. Yehuda Halberstam, of blessed memory, the Tzanze Kloisenberger Rebbe, Schusa Yogan Aleinu, who passed away, Tovshina Tess Tammuz and Tammuz, July 94. And as you know, he was a survivor from the Holocaust. He lost his wife, her name was Chana, I believe, Rebbe Chana, and 11 children in Auschwitz. His wife and 10 children were gassed the first time they, when they arrived. 11th survived and died in the DP camps. But he never even knew that his 11th child survived. I don't think he ever knew. And then he remarried. He had two children who are now the Kloisenberger Rebbes in Israel and here in, in Brooklyn. And he built the Laniato Hospital in Netanya. And he recreated his Hasidic community both here and primarily in Eretz Yisrael, in Kiryat Sanz in Netanya. And he said that Oisei Halayla is referring to something specific. That night doesn't just say they were telling the story all night. Obviously, it's Pesach. The Chazal are trying to intimate something even more nuanced. They were telling the story of Metzius Mitzrayim, Oisei Halayla, on that night. The Kloisenberger Rebbe says that everybody has what's called Oisei Halayla. Everybody has, or many people have, what you might call that night. Sometimes it's in very clear terms. A person will tell you, it was that night when my life was changed. It was that day, it was that night when nothing was the same. Sometimes it's not something that you can identify about one night or two nights or three nights. It's accumulative. But there are those experiences, those relationships, or lack of them. Those journeys that people went through in their life and that's their own Oisei Halayla. It's not just a night. It's the night. It's that night. That particular night. Maybe it was loss of a loved one at a very young age. 
Maybe it was another crisis in a relationship. Maybe it was a psychological or emotional or mental challenge. Maybe it was the breakdown of a family. Maybe it was dysfunction or abuse of another form. Maybe it was a wound that a person experienced consciously or maybe even unconsciously as a result of certain encounters of certain connections. Maybe later in life, a relationship that gets broken, a family that gets devastated, alienation that happens. There's Oise Halayla, a person could point to Oise Halayla that night, that particular experience, that moment or moments, which as a result of that, I live in a withdrawn place. I live in Mitzrayim. I live a very restricted life. I can't emerge. I can't be free. I'm not emancipated. I live in fear. I live in anxiety. I live in shame. I live in desperation. Maybe I live with a lot of anger. Maybe I live with a lot of sadness and pain that I cannot transcend. I can't get over with. Because of that Laila, Oisei Laila, that night, I'm in chains. Sometimes I'm aware of those chains, which is already a half a geula, and sometimes those chains are so deep that I'm not even aware of those chains because I just surrender to them. I don't even know of anything else. Like the slave who doesn't know that there's a concept of freedom. I was born into slavery. I will die into slavery. On that night, when you go back to that night, can you tell the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Can I look at that story and say, and now I want to go out of Mitzrayim? I want to use that story. I want to look at that story, but not to get stuck there. To use that story as a springboard, as a catalyst, as a source of awareness to go out. How can that happen? Comes the Aruch HaShulchan, Rabbi Yechiel, Michal Epstein, and he says, those sages, Osehad, Oseh Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfin, Shoyim Esubim B'nei they also had Oseh Halayla. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, they all had Oseh Halayla. Individually, perhaps, every person has their own life story, but also collectively. Remember, this is the generation of Jewish leaders who witnessed with their own eyes the decimation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the second base Amikdash. And remember, till the Holocaust, there was nothing even close to what happened at Churban Bayez Sheni, what the Romans did to the Jewish people. After Bayez Rishon, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed everything, but 70 years later they came back. And there were some Jews who remained in Eretz Yisrael. What the Romans did after Bayez Sheni, 420 years later, after the building of the second base Amikdash, was such a decimation, so complete, that the Gemara discusses in a few places, will Judaism even survive? Will Torah ever be remembered? There's even opinion that after those days, nobody should get married, one of the sages suggested. Nobody should ever eat meat. Nobody should ever drink wine. Nobody should ever celebrate again. That's how deep the wound was. That's how profound the agony and suffering was. Nobody knew if they were going to emerge. And you know, 50, 60 years later, Bar Kaichva revolted. In 132, the Churban was 70. 62 years later, Bar Kaichva revolted against the Romans. Rabbi Akiva supported him. The Rambam says that Rabbi Akiva thought that he may be Mashiach. He's Mashiach. 
And he was successful for three years. He conquered Jerusalem. He started to rebuild the third base of Mikdash. He minted coins. He dealt a lethal blow to the Romans. He wiped out two complete Roman legions, which was unheard of in the story of the Roman Empire. But the revolt was crushed by Adrian. And a half a million Jews just died then, besides the Chorban. The price of a Jewish slave went down to less than one dollar. You can buy a Jewish slave for life less than a dollar. For life you have a slave. That's how many slaves there were, besides all those that were murdered. This was, and these were the Nesiyah Yisrael. These were the leaders of the Jewish people. They're talking about Rabbi Eliezer, they're talking about Rabbi Yeshua, they're talking about Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Lazar ben Azayir, Rabbi Tarfin. Rabbi Gamliel wasn't there. Rabbi Gamliel was in Yavne, maybe. He passed away already. He was also one of those sages. They had an Oiseh Halayla, and they needed to experience Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. How do we infuse our people, ourselves, with hope, with optimism, with resilience? How do we find those cedars of Yaakov Avinu? The Nitzutzer Shal Yaakov Avinu? Where? How? And for this, the Rebbe's know there's one person you have to go to. And they go to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Lezer wants to stay home for Yom Tif. And Rebbe's want their students to come to them. A student wants to go to his Rebbe for Yom Tif. But at this point, they knew the Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim of Kol Oiseh Halayla is going to happen with Rabbi Akiva. In Kabbalah it says that Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, was a Gilgul of Yaakov Avinu. He was the soul of Yaakov, and that's why Akiva is the letters Yud, Ayin, Kuv, Beis, Aleph, Avinu. Akiva is Yaakov, Yud, Ayin, Kuv, Beis, and Aleph, Avinu. Rabbi Akiva married Rachel, who was a Gilgul of Yaakov's wife, Rachel. That's why their name was Rachel, and the name was Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd, Arizal says, and Yaakov Avinu was a shepherd. Because Rabbi Akiva essentially was a continuum of Yaakov Avinu. He wasn't just a Nasi Nitzutsu Shal Yaakov Avinu. His very name is Yaakov Avinu. The Pasuk says in Bire, the end of Bereish is Avir Yaakov. Avir Yaakov. Avir Yaakov is the letters Rabbi Akiva. Avir Vayechi Memtes Chavdalad. The end of Torah. Yaakov is called Avir Yaakov. The power of Yaakov. So it's the letters of Rabbi Akiva. In the presence of Rabbi Akiva, they could find Yaakov Avinu's cedars. Tzadik Hatoma Yifrach Ke'erez Balvanin Yizge. He's called a tzadik. The Pasuk in Tehillim says, Oyr Zorua La Tzadik Uli Yishrei Leiv Simcha. Light is planted for the tzadik, by the tzadik, and for the righteous and the ones who have an upright heart is Simcha. Oyr Zorua La Tzadik Uli Yishrei Leiv Simcha. If you look at the last letters, Oyr, the last letter is Reish. Zorua, the last letter is Ayin. The Tzadik, La Tzadik, the last letter is Kuf. Uli Yishrei, the last letter is Yud. Lev, the last letter is Vez. And Simcha, the last letter is Hey. So what do you have? Oyr, Zorua, La Tzadik. Again, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the Oyr, planted by Yaakov Avinu. The Tzadik, Ke'erez Balvon and Yizge, in that generation... He is the person that when they were traveling one day in Jerusalem, the Gemara says at the end of Makos, Rabbi Gamliel was going, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lazar ben Azayir, these same colleagues were going and they saw a fox coming out of the Holy of Holies and they all started to weep. They remembered the Kaidish HaKadoshim and now there's foxen 
running around. Imagine what it meant for them. You know, we come to the Harabayas today. We're used to it. There's a mosque. We're used to it. These are people who, some of them saw the second base of Mikdash. And they see a fox coming out of base Kaidash HaKadosh. At that point, it was still a mountain. After the Barkaychu revolt, Adrian flattened. When you look at Harabayas, you don't see a mountain, right? You just see an ele- elevated platform. He lowered it by a thousand feet and he flattened it to completely eradicate any memory even of the mountain. He also changed Judea to Palestina. That became the name Palestine. You know why? He wanted to add insult to injury. So he named it based on the Plishtim, the Philistines. That's why it became Palestine. He also changed the name of Jerusalem to Ayala Capitolana, but that didn't last. But this is what the Roman emperor did in order to erase every last memory. So now there's fox in there. So they start crying. Rabbi Akiva starts laughing. So they asked Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? So as a good Jew, he says, why are you crying? So they say, how could we not cry? This is the place the Torah says, Hazar HaKariv Yumas, a Yisrael who went in here, couldn't survive, and now Shu'alim Hilchubai, a fox is roaming around this place. Is it not a reason to sob? So Rabbi Akiva said, that's why I'm laughing. And Rabbi Akiva said that there's two nevuas, there's two prophecies. There's the nevua of Uriah, and there's a nevuah of Zechariah. The nevuah of Uriah is Tzia in Sada Techarish. Tzia in Zion will be plowed like a field. There's another nevuah. The elderly will yet roam the streets of Yerushalayim. And Jerusalem will be rejuvenated with joy and ecstasy. Rabbi Akiva said, before one prophecy was fulfilled, I didn't know about the other prophecy. But now that I see Sion inside of the church, I see that Sion was plowed like a field. I see a fox roaming around Sion, like a plowed field where foxes run around. Foxes run around. So now I know Oyd Yeshu Skenemuskenes will be fulfilled. Every last prophecy will be fulfilled. So the Gemara finishes Mesachis Makas. They told him these words Akiva, you have comforted us. Tanchuma, Nichamtonu. Twice you have comforted us. The other sages didn't believe in the Gula. They needed to be Akiva to tell them that Oid Yesh was It's one of the 13 principles of faith. Rabbi <laughs> Gamliel didn't believe in Mashiach. They all believed in Mashiach. Of course they all believed in Gula. What Rabbi Akiva was saying was something deeper. When he saw the plowing of Tzion, why does he choose that Pasuk to describe Gullahs? There are many Pesukim to describe the Chorban. There are hundreds of Pesukim, unfortunately. The answer is when you plow a field, what do you see? When somebody's plowing a field, essentially they're destroying the field. The Gemara says, Merafi Ara, they're, they're making the earth weak, they're toiling the earth, they're turning it over, they're making a churban. If you have plants in the field and somebody starts toiling it, you destroy all the plants, all the saplings. What are you doing? You're destroying my field. That's only superficially. But if you understand what is plowing really about, it's creating the fertility of the earth, it's creating the opening, it's allowing the earth to become soil that will be able to grow. Ke'eres Balvon and Yizga. When Rabbi Akiva saw the fox, he didn't just see a fox. He saw the plowing of a field. He saw in Golos Gula. That was the Chiddush of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva allowed them that in Golos they should feel the flavor of Gula. They should see in every crisis, even in darkness, they should see the genesis of transformation. As a door closes, they should see that this is essentially another door opening. In every mashber, the word mashber in Hebrew means a breakdown. The word mashber in Hebrew also means a birthing stool. Isha yoshevet al hamashber. Are there two things more remote from each other? <laughs> the answer is that in 
the machshav and the hashkaf of Yiddishkeit, every mashber, every time something breaks, essentially it's an opportunity for a new birth, for a new leder. Tzia in Sadatecharish is the beginning of For this you need a Rabbi Akiva. You need a person, a soul, that never really lands in Golos fully. fully. They're in Golos to be present with the people, but their soul soars above Golos. They see the Yeshua's Kainim was Kainis and they could celebrate that already in exile. So the Gemara in Brachas says that when Rabbi Akiva's candle was extinguished and his chicken was killed and the donkey, and everybody saw tragedy and he said, called Ovid Rahman Latavavit. He had that ability to be able to take people to a place of freedom and liberty and joy even in a very difficult situation. So for for that night, Rebbe Lezer, his Rebbe, Rebbe Lezer ben Azayah, Rebbe Tarfin, Rebbe Yeshua, all came to Bnei Brak to be able to be with Rebbe Akiva. To tell the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. And then Rebbe Lezer ben Azayah tells them, finally, I have the source to tell the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim at night. When the sun is shining, a person can tell the story of, of Exodus. The sun is shining, you could talk about redemption. But at night, when the sun sets, when there's darkness, how do you remember Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim then? Now it's darkness. Now I just sink into the despair of darkness. But Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah said, he said what he told them, I learned about Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim at night, inspired by Rabbi Akiva's presence. And from the Gemara and Brachas, it seems that this was the first thing Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah taught as a leader. The day he became a Nasi, this was his first message. Why is this your opening message? Because that's the definition of a Nasi. Nasi is Nitsutsu Shayakov Avinu, but Nasi literally means Nasi comes from the word Kisisa, somebody who uplifts, somebody who elevates. Nasi from the word Isnasus, exaltedness. Kisisa Esraj Bnei Yisrael, exaltedness. Because when I'm connected to the Nasi inside of me, when I'm connected to a Nasi, a concrete Nasi, a Nasi that Hashem plants in a generation, what happens? I become free at least for a moment. And if I become free for a moment, the residue, the impact, travels to all the moments. Every person, every person is exposed to challenges, obstacles, pressures. Every person faces various nesioinus and trials and tribulations. But if you could gaze at the cedar tree in your heart and at the cedar tree in your midst, in your midst, and in your midst. You remember that you're a fragment of infinity sent into this world to transform its landscape. You're on a journey from Har Sinai, from Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, to Geula. You don't get afraid of that journey because you know that you transcend that journey. You are an ambassador sent down to transform the landscape of planet Earth. That's the function of every cedar tree, of every leader, of every real parent, of every real teacher, of every real nasi, a manig, a rebbe in Yiddishkeit, to remind all of us that even as we are in exile, individually and collectively, our souls and our bodies can soar on the wings of eternity. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.